hey church will you guys join me as i pray before we come to god's word uh, father uh, we just take a moment now to humble ourselves before your word um, we have thoughts and we have experiences and we have ways that we are shaped just through our weeks but we come now um, just yearning to hear from you in your word. Uh, I pray that your word would cut through all of the noise and would speak to our hearts and our minds. Pray that your word um, would encourage us and build us up and make us more like your son. I pray that your word would comfort us um, as we are going through trials and difficult things. And I pray that your word would, um, within us, grow the gospel so that others uh, might hear the gospel and know Jesus too. So in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so um, today's passage is Matthew 27, 11 to 26. I'll be reading from the ESV. Uh, now Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For I've suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Um, just like DJ said, uh, Heidi and I, we just came back from uh, Europe. It was a really, really great trip. Uh, we saw lots of uh, lovely, beautiful things, uh, ate lots of really carby food. <laughs> um, we actually started our trip in the UK and ended our trip in the UK because we had family there. And my uncle has been living there for the past 20 plus years, originally from Australia. Uh, but when we first got there to the UK, um, we, you know, we did 
what most tourists will do when we went to London and we went to Buckingham Palace uh, just to see what it was like. And uh, I just remember standing in front of these massive gates, um, huge, huge gates. It's a massive, massive uh, property or, or land. Um, trying to get a better look at the palace, trying to, s you know, can we get a glimpse of anyone? Not really. Um, trying to get a look at those uh, guardsmen in w w with their fluffy hats. Uh, were quite interesting, but not that interesting. And I had a flashback as we were standing there uh, in front of these big gates um, to something I saw on TV uh, way back, uh, nearly 20 years ago, uh, in 97, um, as people laid flowers and cards before these gates uh, because Princess Diana had died. I'm not sure if uh, you guys are too young to remember that. Um, I think some of us are, will be old enough to remember that day. Uh, she had died tragically um, in a car accident in a tunnel. And she had been really well loved by all the people. Um, you know, she had this celebrity status, but she used her celebrity status to uh, do really uh, benevolent and, and wonderful things, like raise awareness for leprosy. Like, who does that <laughs> in um, you know, the 20th, 21st century? Raise awareness for domestic violence, for mental health. You know, this was back in the 90s. And when she died, what it did was it brought into focus all of these issues about humanity that she had been concerned for, along with this public outpouring of grief. People were really, really sad. People were crying and weeping. Uh, and actually, the, the result of her death was that there was a drastic drop in crime in London. There was a rise in charitable giving. But also, there was an increase in depression and traumatic stress. Um, if you ask a lot of the people in the UK, I even asked my uncle this, hey, you know, what was that like? A lot of the time you'll hear that this was a defining moment for the people in the UK. Uh, and in fact, all over the world, uh, for many of us, because we're a Commonwealth country, uh, so we experience some of that too. And you know, from time to time, an incident like this takes place in our world that can only be called a defining moment. Right? An incident that brings into focus a whole range of issues about human beings. And people come to see that as a defining moment. You know, this trial that we just read about, the trial of Jesus, this is a defining moment. Maybe it's the defining moment in all of history, all of humanity, uh, because it brings into focus uh, some significant issues about humanity. But the thing that it particularly brings into sharp focus is the guilt of humanity and the grace of God. The guilt of humanity and the grace of God. It brings into focus our guilt and God's grace colliding together spectacularly in this trial. And we looked at our guilt last week, uh, if you were here for that, if you heard that on the podcast, um, and we saw what guilt looks like in the examples of Judas, uh, the betrayer, the chief priests, and even Pilate. In our passages this morning, we're going to see the grace of God right alongside our guilt. And we're going to see it in two trials, two scenes. Uh, verses 11 to 14, we're going to see the trial of Jesus standing before Pilate. And then verses 20 to 23, we're going to see the trial of the crowd standing before Pilate. 
Um, and as we look at these two trials, uh, like I said, it's going to be a defining moment for humanity. And I suspect it might even be a defining moment for you today, this morning. I suspect that it's going to shape you in one way uh, or another. So let's look at this first trial, the trial of Jesus before Pilate. Uh, so Jesus has already been through a trial before, if you remember a few weeks back, uh, what some would call a donkey trial. It's a bit of a farce. He was standing before the chief priests and he was falsely accused. And the verdict was already made up, right? They already knew before they put him through this trial, he was guilty. He's a blasphemer. And now he stands before Pilate, uh, the governor, and Jesus is innocent. And we talked about that last week as well. Uh, and we saw that because, you know, last week we heard Judas saying, I have betrayed innocent blood. And Judas was the, the one person who had the most to gain from Jesus really being, being guilty. He sold him out. So for him to say that I have betrayed innocent blood, that's heavy. That means something. It means that Jesus is really innocent. Not even the guy who betrayed him can deny his innocence. And then we saw the chief priests admit Jesus' innocence because as Judas comes back to them and he returns the 30 pieces of silver, they call it blood money. And they won't use the money for religious purposes because they know it's blood money. They know it's been used for something wrong and evil. And so they go out and they buy this field called the field of blood. But now as Jesus stands before Pilate on trial, uh, we see that even Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. Pilate knows the charges are bogus and made up. And he, he tells us that in verse 18. This is what it says. For he knew that it was out of envy, right? Envy that they delivered him up. And then he tells us again in verse 19, or rather his wife does. She tells us about this interesting dream that she had. This is what it says. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So she had this dream about Jesus. It was heavy. And in that dream, she recognized that he was righteous. So she sends word to her husband. And she says, don't do anything to him. And then in verse 23, Pilate asks a question uh, to the crowd. And he says, why? What evil has he done? But it doesn't do anything. And, you know, essentially the question that he's asking is, what? What's this guy done? What evil has he done to deserve death, as you guys are crying out for? So even Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. But uh, now, just for a moment, I want to shift the focus to Jesus. All right, we just looked at Pilate. Let's look at Jesus for a moment, verses 11 to 14. So Pilate and the chief priests, they accuse Jesus. And what's really interesting here is he is silent. He gives no answer. Pilate even says to him, do you know what they're accusing you of? Because these are serious charges, and he gives no answer. That doesn't happen very often. I, I, maybe you can think back to the last time someone leveled a serious accusation at you, right? Maybe a, a good friend or a family member or a spouse to just stay silent repeatedly. It's really, really hard to do. See, the Roman legal system, Rome was really, really advanced as a civilization, uh, you know, 2,000 years ago. And the Roman legal system was the pride of the Roman Empire because it was really sophisticated. It, was, it resembled our legal system today. It was just. And something that they insisted on was that every defendant 
get at least three opportunities to speak in their defense. And we can see that Jesus is given those three opportunities to speak in his defense, and he just stays silent the whole time, three times in a row. And there are times when silence is actually deafening, right? When silence says enough on its own. And as Jesus stands here, knowing that the charges are bogus, he knows that it would be pointless to say anything to refute them because they've made up their minds. His silence is deafening. He knows he's innocent. The chief priests know that he's innocent. Judas knows that he's innocent. Pilate knows that he's innocent. So even as Jesus stands before Pilate, who is this human judge, Jesus is actually the divine judge here, judging everybody around him. And he's like a lamb before its slaughterers. I don't know if you knew that about lambs, but they don't make a sound when they're about to be killed. And that's how the prophet Isaiah speaks of this moment, uh, 700 years before it even happened. Jesus is this lamb, silent lamb, who's about to go to his death, and he does not say a word. It's a really fitting image because it's a Passover feast. Um, And if you don't know what the Passover feast is, it was uh, an annual feast that the Jews would have to to remember... uh, the exodus out of Egypt, how God had saved them out of slavery in Egypt. And they would sacrifice an unblemished, spotless, innocent lamb. It couldn't be any other kind. Um, And Jesus is going to his death as this lamb. Very, very fitting on Passover. And he's doing that to take away the sin of the world, to to, to set his people free from slavery to sin. And this idea that Jesus is not just silent, but he's perfect, he's innocent, he's unblemished, it's so central to the whole of the New Testament. Peter puts it like this, he says, You were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And again, he puts it like this, he says, He himself knew no sin, right? no deceit was found on his lips, he didn't try to speak up in his defense and deflect or make something up even though we knew what they were going to say. The writer of Hebrews puts it like this. He says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works? This innocence of the silent lamb, it's extremely important. Uh, I want you to imagine for a second. Imagine for a second that I am um, in hopeless debt to uh, our brother Julian sitting here. Uh, I owe him heaps and heaps of money. Um, and even despite that fact, um, let's just say Brother Keith at the back has offered to take uh, my debt off me and pay Julian. But unbeknownst to all of us, it turns out that Keith himself is hopelessly in debt to Julian. Is that going to work? And Julian's, you know, happy because he's going to get a lot of money, but uh, is that going to w- It's It's not going to work because... Keith has his own debt to pay, right? He can't say, I'm going to take on your debt when he already has a debt to pay to Julian. And so if Jesus had his own debt, his own sin debt, uh, there would be no way that he could step in and take our place as our representative. It couldn't be done. Like, this is really, really important. You, you need to know this. I, I don't think we talk about this enough in the church. 
we just think of him as a benevolent, kind savior um, who took one for the team. No, he was spotless. He never sinned. It emphasizes God's grace that that he should come down to earth himself and live a life of utter perfection, a life of utter beauty, the most perfect and the most beautiful life that anyone has ever lived without sin, without deceit. He never lied. And that he should go to the cross in our place and die as a sacrifice for us. This is a defining moment in human history because it emphasizes God's grace. And the fact that Jesus is innocent and perfect and blameless and a sacrifice, it makes all the difference. It means that he can carry your guilt and mine for our rebellion against God. And in contrast, it means that you cannot carry your own guilt. I don't know how hard you've been trying to do that, you know, by distracting yourself, by making yourself feel accomplished and better in a myriad of uh, other ways. We can't carry our, our, our own guilt, but, but this innocent, blameless Savior can. The grace of God, perfect and pure, without blemish, uh, greater love has... No one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. And Jesus goes to the cross, innocent of all crime. That's the first scene. Jesus standing before Pilate, innocent and silent. But the second uh, is this, the trial of the crowd standing before Pilate. And as we move to the second trial of the crowd standing before Pilate, uh, I want you to think about what they're like. And I want you to think about what you can see in them. See, because if the scene before Jesus standing before Pilate, if that shows the grace of God, this scene of the crowd standing before Pilate shows the guilt of humanity, right? The guilt of humanity. So at this time, it would have been an absolutely massive crowd. Um, Passover was kind of the uh, festival, the celebration for the Jews. So just picture the whole Jewish nation, the diaspora, like scattered all over coming and making the way to Jerusalem, kind of like a pilgrimage, um, to celebrate Passover. And this huge crowd is now in front of Pilate. It's not like this small group of 20 people. It's like a massive crowd in front of Pilate as he sits on that judgment seat. And the chief priests, by now they've persuaded the crowd, this huge number, to ask Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. Look with me from verse 21. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they all shouted. They shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So, you know, we've already seen that Judas is guilty, right? He sold Jesus out. And then he said himself, I have betrayed innocent blood. And then he hanged himself. We've seen that the chief priests are guilty, right? Condemning an innocent man to death, uh, influencing and persuading the crowd to release Barabbas, this known criminal and murderer. And I think we have to say that by the end of this, this account, 
Pilate is also guilty by his inaction. Right, it's got blood on his hands, even though he washes his hands with water. And we see in Pilate a representation of many a leader in our world today. How many leaders do we see on the news um, or just in our social sphere? Uh, leaders who know that their public a- actions are very wrong and yet they don't have the courage to actually act up to what they know. They fear the people. They fear what the people would think of them. They cannot bear being unpopular. And they'll sacrifice their conscience uh, to stay in power. And this is what Pilate is doing. So Judas is guilty. The chief priests are guilty. And Pilate is guilty. But the real focus of uh, verses 20 to 23 is the people, the crowds, standing trial before Pilate. They know that Jesus is innocent. And Pilate offers them a choice between Barabbas, a murderer, and Jesus. And you have to see here that Pilate repeatedly points out to them that Jesus is innocent. He gives them every opportunity to not do this incredibly wrong, unjust, evil act that they're about to do. And each time they just cry out, crucify him. And we come to the end of the second trial and the, the crowds, the people before Pilate. Um, and I want you to just think back for what, from what we've seen in this last week of Jesus' life. Um, we've seen the disciples deserting him, right? His friends, the people who he has uh, taught and walked with and lived with. Uh, one of his kind of most significant disciples, Peter, denies him. Judas betrayed him. Uh, the chief priests delivered him. Pilate failed him. And now the crowd cries out for his blood. And um, this is where I want us to not do the thing where <laughs> we read this and we kind of hold it at arm's length and we say, okay, that, yeah, these are just really terrible examples. How could they do this to Jesus? Because there is a sense in which you cannot help but see yourself in this scene. Think about this. The disciples denied Jesus out of cowardice. Who of us hasn't acted out of cowardice and denied Jesus? Peter denied him out of the fear of man. Who of us, at a vital, important moment, out of the fear of man, hasn't rejected Jesus? Jesus, uh, sorry, Judas denies Jesus out of greed. Who hasn't done that? The crowd has a mob mentality and they reject Jesus. Which one of us hasn't experienced that? Pilate acts out of self-interest. And we all know that what that's like too. See, the only innocent one in this whole city of thousands is Jesus. And that's good news because I don't want to stand here this morning and tell you that you have the potential to be good. And if you just live up to it, if you just change some of your habits, if you think differently, if you have a new mindset, you can walk into that potential. You know the things that you struggle with. I'm sure there are many uh, right now. 
you know those parts of yourself that clash against your conscience, that you're uncomfortable with? You know that you're not innocent. You know that you're not good. Neither am I. But he is. He's good. He's innocent. And he's a savior. These two trials bring into focus our guilt and God's grace. And I want to do something before we apply this passage. Uh, I know we don't all watch sports, but um, I think maybe you've seen this before on TV where sports commentators, uh, after a game, they'll use like a digital pen and they'll circle certain players on a team and tell you what they should have done at the vital moment. And what I want to do now is something like that. I want to circle uh, three questions that Pilate asks uh, in this text of Jesus and then of the crowd. And I want you to see how this question brings into focus and almost kind of compounds and magnifies guilt and grace. So first question is this in verse 11. He asks, are you the king of the Jews? And just look at how Pilate starts. He identifies Jesus as the king. And by doing so... um, Pilate draws the crowd's attention, but also our attention, that th- to the fact that Jesus is the king, the king of kings. Uh, the crowds have seen it. We've seen it as we've studied Matthew when he healed the centurion's servant with a word, when he raised Jairus' daughter from, uh, from death, when he emptied the hospitals of Galilee and he healed many people, when he calmed the storm, when he fed thousands with a few pieces of measly bread and some fish, when he taught with such authority that it says the people were amazed and astonished. This is not just an innocent man. This is the king of kings. Are you the king of the Jews? Yes. Then two more questions, verse 17 and 22. So verse 17 first. It's what Pilate says, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus? And the answer is Barabbas. And then verse 22, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And the answer is, let him be crucified. The king of kings, innocent, blameless, spotless, exchanged for a murderer. The people crying out for his crucifixion. And when you look at this, justice, man, your guilt is compounded. Kind of rise up inside of you. It's magnified. It's not a good feeling. And you can go your whole life trying to bury that guilt with accomplishments, with distractions, with relationships, with objects, with holidays, with just things. And some of us are trying to do that today. Just kind of push it down. Guilt is compounded and magnified when we look at this text. But so is grace. Grace is compounded and magnified. I want you to think about this. Pilate is sitting there on that morning, you know, maybe enjoying his coffee and some toast. And he's thinking about this Jesus who uh, he's no doubt heard about. He's very famous by this point. Um, He's probably looked at the report from one of his centurions who has reported, this Jesus, he, he healed my servant with a word. And just the night before, 
you know, he's been chatting about Jesus with his wife and he's been telling him, you know, I, I had a terrible sleep because I had a dream about him and he was innocent. He was righteous and, you know, bad things were happening to him. And now it's the next day. He's sitting on this judgment seat and this battered, bruised man with dried blood and lumps of spit covering him is standing before him. And Pilate says, is this it? Are you really the king of the Jews? And he says, I am. It's the only response that he gives. See, this king is the king of kings. And the New Testament testifies to that. It's, it's, it says that his kingdom is eternal. It says that there'll be a day where every single knee will bow before this king, whether you acknowledge him as king or not. doesn't change the fact that he's, he is. But this king did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's grace compounded and magnified. And this is a defining moment for you and for me. See, to be a Christian doesn't mean that you belong to a church. I honestly couldn't care less how often you... I don't want to say that. <laughs> if you think that you're a Christian before you, because you come to a church, because you attend, you attend a church, I want to tell you that, uh, this morning that that is not the primary marker of what it means to be a Christian doesn't mean that you belong to a church. That's not what it means to be a Christian, that you send your kids to a Christian school, that you adopt Christian morals, that you tick the box on the census that says Christian, that you hang out with other Christians. To be a Christian means that you belong to the kingdom of the king. And what does that mean? It means that Jesus is your king. There's no in-between. Jesus is not just your homie or your teacher. He's either your king or he's not. So it's either that or you're with the crowds, rejecting the king, not belonging to his kingdom, no in-between. And that, friends, is a life just very simply, ultimate, ultimately, without hope. You can eat and you can drink and you can enjoy life to your full extent, but that's a life ultimately without hope. This king, he came to us. Um, he lived a life of utter perfection and beauty, right? The most perfect and beautiful life that anyone ever lived, and wi like without sin, without deceit, and he went to the cross in our place to die as a sacrifice for us. And like I said, that means that this king came not to be served, but to serve. And that means that this king is approachable. He came to serve you. It means he's approachable. He's full of grace and truth. Is he calling you today? Can you hear him speak to you through his word? Why are you delaying? What's the hang-up? Is your guilt being compounded and magnified? Well, look at this king who came to serve and give his life 
as a ransom for many. This king who's calling you today to approach him, to come and belong to his kingdom, to know him as the king, to live an abundant life in him. Don't delay. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I pray for all our church, um, all the people gathered here and all the people who uh, were not able to make it today. And I just, I just pray that you would continue to speak to us through your word. Um, I, I pray that we would really have a conviction of Jesus as the King of Kings, but the King of Kings who laid down his life for his people. I just, I desire that for all of us. Um, there are many things that we are going through. There are many things that like really weigh heavy on our minds and our hearts. And I don't want to be callous and overly simplistic but um, I know what we all need is to know you as this good and gracious, humble king. I just ask that you would help us to, to know you as that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.